Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, we are, as we uh, always are, at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. We're deep in the bunker. Today, the Southerners outnumber the Northerners, just so you folks in the South know. We've got a special guest, and he's going to introduce himself in a minute, but he's from Mississippi. Oh, you don't get any yeah. more Southern than Mississippi. That's right. I mean, I mean even... Well, even, Virginia. <laughs> but... but it, is there like a is there like a debate in the South about who's really southern? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Virginia well, is pretty. Uh, that's considered pretty, northern for it's a lot. It's practically northern. Yeah. <laughs> that's what South I was meaning. That's what I mean. <laughs> here we are in Connecticut, and I'm not even a, in a. I'm not from Connecticut myself. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and so Western Pennsylvania is like its own thing. Yeah. In yeah. Western Pennsylvania, you got you know you got Kentucky, you got West Virginia, you got you know Ohio, and you got West. It's a whole thing in and of itself. It doesn't really think of itself as southern or northern. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But we're glad to have you with us today. Now, the reason why we have uh, a special guest that he'll introduce your, uh, himself in a moment is because our good friend, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, is away. And why is he away? Is he away on a vacation or is this like a professional thing? I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. Sometimes, <laughs> well, the best of, of men are able to make both of those things work together. That's right. And, and we know that uh, Glenn is the best of Yes, men. that's right. He's the best of men. So, uh, anyway, uh, why don't we introduce ourselves and uh, then we'll have uh, the, uh, the, the topic of the day introduced. Uh, Tom, why don't you start? Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm Dr. Joseph Leek. Uh, I teach uh, medieval and ancient and classical literature and uh, English linguistic stuff at the uh, Potter School online homeschooling school. And before, taught for taught composition for oh, eight years at UConn, University yeah. of Connecticut. And that's where you got your uh, and that's where I got, got my degree. PhD, right? yeah. Yeah, so, so both uh, Tom and Joseph are part of my church. Yes, that's right. so you guys know, and I'm. Uh, Pastor C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I've written a bunch of stuff, but I've talked about that stuff before, so whatever. <laughs> anyway, let's get into some interesting stuff. Uh, and today's topic is really interesting, and it's Tom's Day. So what are we talking about, Tom? Okay, I'm going to talk about something I hope I can make work. So, <laughs> And it's kind of fresh for me in terms of relating to this theme, but uh, I think there's a lot here. Propaganda is really the, the larger topic. And then I'm going to be talking about the different ways in which um, our pictures of reality impact the way in which um, propaganda can impact and affect us. And so really the title, if we had one, would be Propaganda, Metaphysics, and Discipleship. Um, but as we go along, we'll kind of break down what all of that means. Um, I wanted to start with uh, something, a 2006 book by uh, Mark uh, Walliger. It's called Modernism, Media, and Propaganda. And it really looked at British narrative from 1900 to 1945. But what's interesting of this work is what he begins with, and that was George Orwell's 1941 radio address, hmm. in which he famously stated that propaganda in some form or another lurks in every book, that every work of art has some meaning and purpose. It's just different than the art for art's sake, right? Yeah, right, right. Um, but this purpose was either political, social, or religiously motivated, and that our aesthetic judgments are always colored by our prejudices and beliefs. Now, it sort of sounds like Orwell had been reading Nietzsche at this yeah, point. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, um, and so, 
Walliger was quick to reply that if we changed the word propaganda to ideology, um, this now familiar thought would essentially be the creed of what has become theory's empire, that empire which now dominates the humanities and increasingly the sciences. Um, and this is exemplified mostly by critical theory. Right, right. So critical theory, I think Joseph could probably give us a lot more about that, but it aims to go sort of either behind or under the language being used or the actions being taken and unmask the prejudices and biases, um, the ill-willed protections of power and privileges yep. that language and behavior sort of mask. Mm -hmm. now, yes. now, what's interesting to me about that just initially is that you know when we think about Orwell in 1984 and you know, all of the, you're, I can see you're not. You, you, you <laughs> right, no, we're, we're great going. point, yeah. <laughs> Read my mind. Yeah. <laughs> go, go. Yeah, no, 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 I, I don't want to steal your thunder. No, but I think, no, I go for it because I think you're, you're saying what the, the question yeah, for, is. Because in 1984, he's making a, a case for the for the meaning and for, for language yeah. uh, and uh, trying to, to sort of deliver it from the very thing he just described. Yep. You know, because when we think about the ministry of truth, you yep. know, and the, sort of the manipulation of language, manipulation of history, all of these things, he, you know, in that book, the, mass, the subtext, or maybe even the main point, is that, you know, uh, words should be reliable, that we should yep. be able to speak the truth. Yep. And this, I think, hits the tension point that Orwell is sitting on. Um, and I was going to say exactly the same thing. Um, whatever the similarities, Orwell was talking about was not critical theory. Yeah. Um, and anyone who has read his work, especially, for example, the 1946 essay, Politics in the English Language. Yeah, one of the great essays. One would see that the linkage of critical theory and the political agendas driving them would be guilty of the very thing he finds troubling. Yeah. And so, uh, and more so, critical theory's totalitarianism. Um, as Christopher Ricks put it, and he's talking about critical theory, uh, theory's empire that is, the dominance of critical theory in academia and culture, is an empire zealously inquisitorial about everything, every form of empire but its own. And this mm. would have troubled, of course, Orwell. Yeah. Um, that's what he found yeah. troubling. Yeah. But I think where... No, no, go ahead. You want to run? I think where uh, Orwell sits in making the statement that he said above is right at this point at which propaganda... Um, replaces propagating um, and, and I'll, I'll unpack that a bit more but where he's sitting is at a time at which we had already in the modern West stepped enough away from realism that is our connectedness to the created and moral order that gives sense and intrinsic meaning to our language and, and our references we moved enough away from this at this time to which it was hard to talk about the difference between propagating truth and proper behavior that conform to reality mm -hmm. versus ideology, mm -hmm. which is a constructed vision of the way things should be out uh -huh. there and the conforming of our language and, and actions to it. Right. Now, now so the, the etymology, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, uh, Joseph, but the etymology of propagating versus propaganda. What's the story behind that? You know, when I think of propagation, I'm thinking, you know, something like reproduction. Yes. You know, when I think of propaganda, I think of something just purely manipulative. You know, I don't know if there's something... Well, I know uh, the word, I get this from Walliger, the word derives from Latin, originally referred to a committee of, well, I'm talking about its application, to a committee of cardinals <laughs> um, okay. that uh -huh. were to propagate 
um, and it was sort of later extended to designate any association, a systematic scheme, or concerted movement for the propagation of doctrine and practice. So, I mean, I think... It does originally mean to cause to multiply. Is that, we're talking about propagate, right? Yes. Right, so you're right about the... Uh, and it would be, it would be multiplying um, a couple of different things in, in, in terms of its, its sort of Latin Christian usage. It would have been propagating. It would have been similar to what we go by discipleship. Go make right. disciples. Uh, right, baptize right. them in his name, teaching them these things, right. wrapping a form of life around them. And why? Because that is the fullest picture of reality right. that we're made to conform to, 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 to flourish and reach our eternal ends. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis will often talk about this uh, difference. Um, propagating, for example, in, in terms of classical view of reality, would be because the world is created and ordered in a certain way um, morally and realistically that when we train our children and others through education um, to have in their very actions, language and behavior and beliefs um, Oh, thank you very much. We train them I in such a, a way Yeah, Joseph just got his brew. I got, yeah. I got here late. Go ahead <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so what did you get, Joseph, so our listening audience oh, can Oh, this help. is a Smithix Irish Ale with a nice, nice dark ale with a nice foamy top. Yeah, and, and of course, as an Anglophile, oh, yes. this, is a, this is a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think, well, yes, I have uh, Irish. Uh, lie to me, man. That's all right, that's all right. Thanks for offering. Thanks for offering. Thanks for offering. We had a... Uh, you wasn't there. Man. No, I weren't. <laughs> I know for you, though. I'm good, though. <laughs> yeah, just so our listening audience knows, we were offered a couple of shots for, 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 of Irish whiskey by uh, ah, by a Puerto Rican gentleman in the in the in the pub, and uh, and we didn't think he was serious, but he was. Ah, <laughs> you missed out. You missed out. <laughs> we did. We did. Anyway, oh, uh, back back to okay. back to what we we're back talking to, about. Uh, back to what we were talking about. Um, and so. I can trace my thought after that. Um, I think we were talking about the way in which propagating was a good thing. It was yeah, the way yeah. in which, for example, you train a child to appreciate some moral good or some um, creation good in a way that their experiences, their language and actions actually conform to right. the reality. There's a congruence between my feelings of, for example, something beautiful and the beauty itself. Yeah, and kind of the mirror image of that is just sort of the, the way in which propagation reflects the natural process in which things develop and grow in, mm. over generations. Mm. You know, so, if, you know, when we think about parable of the sower, yeah. sowing the seed, you know, what you have there, sort of the, the subtext of that parable is that some of the seed falls on, you know, on soil that doesn't do what soil should do, and that's a problem. So in other words, there's an implicit morality to that's right. uh, you know, taking you know, and receiving and reproducing. That's right. Uh, it's not. It's not okay that you're sterile. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then, so there. You know, there is a there's a true form to things, and the goal of propagating is is cultivating in us that corresponding form that matches the right. the form that's in creation. Um, that is. Well, well, wouldn't that imply then that we are uh, kind of the the, the produce. Yeah. Of the of the reality around us. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
And so, in that, and so education again would be, and discipleship would be the the ability to to pass this on, and then um, and then uh, continue um, the flourishing and and the direction of the creation mm -hmm. um, according to what it was created to be and do. Right. Um, so, but but what happens with propaganda is something a metaphysical picture comes in that creates a distance. And, and cuts off some things. Um, it's what T.S. Eliot once said, a dissociation of sensibility um, that began in the 17th century with the English Revolution, um, or as uh, Ford Maddox Ford, interesting name there. Um, it's, it's interesting that he brings up the English Re Revolution, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, for, for some of our listeners who have, uh, you know, an affection for the uh, Westminster standards and, and things of that nature, um, here's a here's a perspective that says not everything that came out of that was okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. well, the, yeah, and that was part. And, and as Ford said, uh, he's talking the way in which that time there's a split between factuality and and sort of the the way in which we are related to to factuality. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're all referring to something similar to what C.S. Lewis is talking about in The Abolition of Man, is what happens with our intellect in our stomach. Um, this new metaphysical picture cuts off the very thing that holds those things into proportion. Right. And so what happens is, is the, our sentiments, our, the proper way in which we feel and act in accord with truth, beauty, and goodness um, is not cultivated and developed properly. Right. And so, therefore, we do not have a direct um, connection to reality. Right. It right. becomes. It becomes. We become buffered to it, and we become severed from it. And so, this is that place in which it doesn't inform every aspect of who we are: our intellect, our emotions, our will, our desires. And so, so we are at a remove from it. So this is why ideology comes in rather than reality and starts to yeah. be, hold itself up as the goal of things. Mm -hmm. And so what, the, what our disconnected um, emotions and feelings and desires now do is they sit unshaped and unformed unless something comes along and directs them to it. Yeah. In the modern world, uh, according to Lewis, for example, sat there and didn't do anything with those things, just let them be whatever they were. They gave no shape yeah, to, yeah. to the desires and to the, right. to the sentiments and to our thoughts, and therefore they left a place for them to be manipulated. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's what... Uh, well, I think in part, while you're looking for, for mm -hmm. that quote, I think in part, you know, that's... Um, you know, the, sort of the, the object, or so the, the agenda of much of the modern Sort of philosophical project was to sort of drain the world of its moral content. Yeah, yeah. I think All, to learn. you know, the easier to impose our will upon it. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, one of the things that's sort of a classic, uh, sort of a you know, objection to what you just uh, outlined. Mm -hmm. You know, let, let's let's just kind of go and sort of re. Uh, you know, sort of uh, repeat what we, you know, we've heard so many times, and that is, you know, prove it. You know, <laughs> prove, prove that there's a reality out yeah. there to uh -huh. which we are to conform ourselves to, and then you end up with the kind of the arguments that, uh, you know, you came out of the the empirical or the empiricist tradition, which, uh, you know, located even sense data within the in the con within consciousness. Yeah. So that you know what you what you what you are perceiving is not actually the thing itself, yeah. but just simply 
some sense data that you're construing and forming in different yeah, ways. Yeah. You know, it's all coming about, from within yourself. Yeah, that's right. So you're you're actually the shaper of, of, mm -hmm. of even that reality. I remember yeah. when I was first introduced to to uh, you know the empiricist. Uh, I just was at <laughs> last people who were in touch with the real world. Uh -huh. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had, yeah. I, my my first exposure to those kind of ideas. I've never been able to understand uh, the allure of them because my, as an undergrad, this was in a, a analysis of lit class, I think was one of the first times I really had to engage with this idea as an undergraduate. And my immediate response, and I guess I feel thankful that this is, for whatever reason, <laughs> my gut response, it's just how like unappealing it seemed. It just yeah. sounded completely boring to me. Like, okay. you know, That's here cool. I am thinking, let's, let's find truth and meaning, and you're telling me it's all just in here. Like, before I even had a... Um, intellectual or philosophical or theological response to that, it just sounded completely dull to yeah. me. Well, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe that's something we should, we should encourage people to do is trust their kind of initial gut instincts with yeah, this stuff. right. I remember yeah. when I was uh, in Introduction to Philosophy as a, I think, maybe a sophomore or even a junior in college, and it was just a survey, you know, and we had, um, I actually had a, had a great undergrad program when it came to, you know, immersion in philosophy. We had ancient we had medieval and mm. we had modern. We had three semesters. Oh, nice. Can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah, yeah in today's yeah. world. Uh -huh. And I remember when we got to anomalous in the medieval section. Medieval section, I was like, "This is the weirdest thing. No way! No <laughs> right. way! That's yeah, not how on. things work." Right. Come on. <laughs> I was, it was like kind of a gut level sort of yeah. you know, reaction. It was repulsive to me. Yeah. Right. It, it felt like a betrayal of myself. My whole yeah experiences up to that point of what I had found meaning in. You know, it's like, you're asking me to say that all along it was just me? And yeah. this is, it is repugnant. And then there is, yeah, the, I mean, yeah. for the one who sits back and starts to just think a couple of minutes, there's just the, the, the rational absurdity of it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, once you start to say, well, if this is all that is, then so is the very thought of that very yeah. thing. And so therefore, right. um, solipsism and, you know, you know, it, it's, it's like Lewis says, and Lewis had a great way, I guess, just breaking it down for most people. It's, it's sooner or later, they have to borrow the capital off of something else yep, in order yeah. to do what they do. And then they end up cutting down the very roots for which their whole claim yeah, makes Yeah, they saw their own branch off, like a cartoon character. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Like Sylvester the Cat or something, sawing the branch and then falling. That's right. So he I mean, cut his own branch off. Like, it's, like, it's like... A, I think it was David Bentley Hart who once said, who increasingly I'm having problems with other things. But anyway, yeah, have you gotten his new book? Yeah, it's coming out. I don't have it yet, but okay. yeah, we'll have to visit that at some point. Uh, A review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, any book sold with the idea that for so many thousands of years Christianity has been just so wrong about that, that already, that already right. tells all me right. I'm not, only buying yeah. it because it's propaganda. <laughs> That's right. Or, yeah. you know, I, I had somebody ask me recently about why I was reading um, Charles Taylor. Yeah. And I said, well, I mean, I need to remain conversant. That's that's the thing, you know. Yeah. Now, I think there's some things about Taylor's work that's good. You know, that's he's, right. he's yeah. got some good insights. But... I understand that there are, you know, are limited, short, short, shortcomings, weaknesses, but uh, you know that's the thing. Sometimes you have to just read stuff that you just don't want to read, right? Just yeah, because you have to. Right, it's part of being a responsible, right. engaged, you know. And you do that, and then you refresh yourself with uh, the Indian or Sir Gawain the Green Knight or Star Wars, whatever it might be. Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> Star Wars has been the salvation of many a young man. That's right. Yes, it has. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, but that's responsible. You know, it's yeah. not all about well, reading the things you agree with. You need to know what people are saying. Yeah. Well, getting back to this whole this whole sort of 
this temptation to disillusionment mm -hmm. that you experience when you are sort of being uh, the object of you're, you're, you're experiencing propaganda. Yeah, you know, you're, you're being introduced to a you know a theory or an, an ideology, and you're and you're being asked to renounce the things that got you into the discipline in the first place. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you think about, you know, why, why do people yeah. study literature? Well, because they love what they've experienced in literature. Yeah, and right. the, one of the early things you get is, oh, you naive yeah. child. Right. It was yeah. that theory, theory and theory's empire that, that drew you to Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's because you, you away from them. Because you <laughs> thought you were encountering wisdom and beauty. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. And it's sad to see people, uh, yeah. and people, various people I've known start off that way. Uh, and they just end up renouncing, you know, the things and, that and, really drew them. And they become to it. ugly people. Yeah, yeah. many times, right? Yeah. You, you, well, yeah, you try to talk about this kind of stuff with them, and you find you no longer can. Yeah. They just have a kind of yeah. cynical and sort of, yeah. you know, knee-jerk reaction to it that yeah. about been, how awful it is or how it yeah is how oppressive oppressive Tolkien this or that or right, right. Yeah. Yeah. closet racist right and they wind up uh, and again there goes your your you know this is the the thing I was uh, talking about the way you get that uh, critical theory is one of the uh, things that. Um, Orwell had a problem with the way critical theory wed itself to certain political agendas yeah. and moral agendas that it doesn't even have the it doesn't even have the the weight to be able to carry um, justice, for example. In, in a critical world, who cares? Mm, At right, the end of the yeah. day, if power is sort of the yep. ultimate end game, and it's just oh, yeah. you getting a hold of it, well. The, who cares ultimately if you get it or don't? But well, yeah. what we yeah. have in the current the current political environment is a is a sort of a kind of the situation that I think uh, you know we see after the assassination of Caesar, or actually before. You know what we have with Caesar is a kind of a uh, the, the the dictator and uh, the you know and hoi polloi, you know the masses, yeah. the, the, you know the the uh, the proletariat, the, mm -hmm. uh, the you know the, the freemen who are who are Propertyless. Um, there's a kind of alliance that they form against the patrician class, hmm. and uh, you know Brutus and uh, the Senate. You know they could see what was you know what was developing, and so they kill Caesar, and right. that kind of leads to this you know civil wars and just one thing after another. But I think that's what we have in our in our current situation is is we have a, a political elite who are playing upon the fears and the longings and the resentments of, you know, people who, in many respects, are, are really quite pitiful, you know, yeah. you know and uh, they, you know, and then they're also, also playing upon the, the natural human, you know, tendency to sympathize with the weak. Now, all this can happen when you have a, a society that's affluent. Yeah. But when you have a society in which uh, there are tremendous challenges that need to be met in order to simply survive, none of this stuff has any uh, power to uh, shape our way you think. In those situations, you need heroes. Now, we don't hear about heroes anymore. In fact, the only way you can justify being a hero is by, Thank you. you know, your... Uh, your, your willingness to, to sort of serve this, uh, this group of people over here who are the designated, you know, uh, you know objects of all of our pity. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas a hero historically was somebody who saved the community from some real threat yeah. outside, you know, mm -hmm. who, who was, you know, uh, 
Well, right. well, like Beowulf. Right. Yeah. Well, and what you have going on there is the conformity of a virtue to the reality. Here is a threat. Yeah. Here is a set of circumstances yeah. in which this virtue corresponds to to the kind of moral order and order of things yeah. that allows it to carry out a significant, meaningful purpose for a higher set of values that are really there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so the heroes now are just symbolic. For yeah. an ideology, yeah. and yes, exemplify yeah. it, yeah. Right. you know, yeah. whether they exemplify it enough or not. Like for example, I was I was watching a YouTube channel the other night. That's what I do. I never watch anything but YouTube anymore. <laughs> yep. But uh, <laughs> YouTube. Yeah, we were talking about this. All those old even VHSs from, even, that people have uploaded on YouTube. That's right. I'm watching I'm watching Celtics games from the <laughs> yeah. early 1980s. Yes. Yeah. And and they were it was they're great. <laughs> and music too. You can get, you well, get, this is what I was yeah, talking about. Yeah. So what they do is they they, they bring in all these uh, millennials and, and people in their teens, and they have them sit down, and they play the '70s for them. <laughs> and oh, they ask them, yeah. you know, do, have you ever heard this song? And if you have, who's the artist? Yeah. And it's just amazing for a guy like me. I was like, of course you know right. that. <laughs> they're complete. I've never heard this song. You kidding yeah. me? <laughs> right. right. Is this the, um, uh, what is it called, Kids React and Teens yes, React? Right. Yeah, these are a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but one of them was is there's this, uh, this presentation of you know, this song by Elton John. <laughs> and we all know what Elton John's all about in his yeah. private life, but yeah. it's not so private. But anyway, you know, there's, there's like, oh, what a great hero for the LGBT. I'm like, hero schmero. <laughs> from the beginning, this guy was a poser. I mean, from the beginning, uh -huh. this was just one more way to sort of set himself apart. This is another way to make himself right. cool. It's another way to market right, his Right, but it's the image. From yeah. the beginning. Right. Yeah. I remember even from the start that that was what it was really all about. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying he's not homosexual. I mean, obviously, he is. But, but to, to call that guy a hero? We're not talking about a guy who's who's in the ghetto and comes out That's of right. the closet. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in a way, we still want heroes to be sort of larger than life. We just yeah. don't quite admit it. That's why it's not going to be the person coming out of the ghetto poor. But when I think it's of somebody a hero, who's a celebrity, does celebrity for the right cause. But when I think of a hero, I think about Aeneas. Right. Yeah. Now there's yeah. a hero. Yeah, yeah. Takes well, a, you know. And what you have here is a changing world picture because mm -hmm. now the, the 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 hero has is exemplified by the kind of modern myth of of kind of liber you know modernist myth of liberating ourselves from the prejudices of tradition in the past. Right. And being a hero is someone who is no longer determined by those very things that got him here anyway. But that's a whole other story. Hmm. but is the one who kind of transcends it through their own conviction to kind of yeah. stand up against it. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the, the classic hero is a yeah. person who's dealing with reality. Yes, that's right. You know, not just social conventions, but that's reality right. itself, that's the right. struggle to live, the struggle to help this community live. And it is, as Lewis will point out in Abolition Man, and it was organically connected to the, the, the cosmic order and the way it was carried on through history, tradition, culture, and everything else. It was, it was not an innovation, it was a cultivation. Yes. So it may be, it may be a, a, a new direction that that, that, um, that that ethic or something would take in a, in a different thing, but here we're dealing with, we're dealing with fabrication, innovation, all the way from the, the, the liberation picture that the modern world created to the heroes and, and well, we talked about virtual reality in, in the show that Glenn did on transhumanism. Yeah, yeah. But we could say that, tr that virtual reality has been with us for a while now. I think you could argue modernity um, not only worked off the capital of realism 
and, and, and sort of Christian realism for a long time. Right. But what postmodernity did is, is show, expose that as a sham. Yes. And that it's really standing in thin air. Yeah. And so it, it called its bluff. Yeah. But on the other hand, it places us in a worse position because yeah. now we're recognizing, since it was in thin air, the argument now is everything is in thin air. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. And so, therefore, ideology is more dangerous and propaganda more dangerous to us because it's unmoored. Well, this is why you know, I, I increasingly, uh, you know, sort of sink into this depression uh -huh. that the only thing that can deliver us is catastrophe. Because this catastrophe is when reality bites back at a massive scale. Yeah. And yes. and and the f the fools are exposed. Yeah. And it it can go on for a while, you know, as we saw with the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. where you had people who had kind of a kind of a bifurcated sort of life. Yeah. Where they knew how to parrot the, the you know yeah. sort of the, the 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 officials the official take on things, but then they were. You know, sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, let's go watch the VHS from the West tonight at your that's place. Right, that's right. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and 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 increasingly, that's what we're we're subjected to. We're subjected to naive and even stupid and undeducated people who are running our government. Let's just be clear about this. Yeah. None of them have done anything really significant besides pose on you know, you know, uh, and say stupid things for social media, mm -hmm. and. Be, be lionized by another group of fools. I'll just play it, yeah. say it like that. You know, who control uh, media, and I, I uh, you know, I'm thinking in terms of popular media or powerful main, mainstream yeah. media, whatever. Well, these are the the big the big instruments. Right. Um, right. Just yesterday, I was I was looking at something on the New York Times. It was about vegetarians who are becoming butchers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is. Yeah, I thought. Hey, cool. <laughs> yeah. This is New York Times talking about how vegans and vegetarians are discovering meat, <laughs> and how much healthier they feel, and how much it's helping uh, them, and stuff like that. Conversion experience. That's right. Then they show a, a photograph of a woman with a side of beef, the ribs and all. Who, first of all, she's not dressed appropriately to butcher anything, yeah. and she, the other thing, she's about ninety pounds. Yeah. And I think to myself, I know butchers. They don't look like you. They're not clean like you. They're not dressed like you. They've got something on there. This is this is a pose. This is so, so. What they did is they they went to some butcher shop, and the and the guys. I'm sure that probably 99 percent of them were men. They said we can't have a picture of of a man, mess, messy and bloody in the New York Times. Is there is there a woman in the house? I'm right. sure this is what happened. Yeah. And oh yeah, we got a receptionist out there. <laughs> or they brought somebody with them to stage. Or they did that. Well, it was, and, and you looked at her, and you look at her arms, and you said, "There's no way that mm -hmm. you could do this work." And what you have going on there, it's interesting. Um, and and um, I mean, you, what you have is the way. Well, maybe it shows, gives us an insight into the way how easily manipulated we can be now. Because of the okay. power of the the new narrative and the image. Now, if, right. if you've never done anything physical in your life, no. connection you to that, reality. That's right. You, yeah. you look at that image and you say, "Oh, isn't that marvelous? We have female butchers." Right. <laughs> but you, you hit the exact point in in an example. The reality of the situation would be a different picture. Yeah. The ideal has has been imported. This clean person, small not dressed for it, no blood on them, anything. Yeah. And that's what is sold to sell the, yeah. the, the narrative and the propaganda versus you put the real picture there with someone who actually worked in it and everything else. 
not only is that creating a different thing, but it's connecting it mm -hmm. to the way things really are. Yeah. And so this is kind of a way in which, you know, you, you like can, we, we know enough. We actually have a butcher in our church. Yeah, Elijah uh -huh. is a butcher. Uh -huh. You know, right. you, yeah, now now, do you think he'd sell a lot of pick? You know, sort of a lot of. Elijah is a Puerto Rican guy, and is he's a butcher yeah, for a local uh, yeah. grocery store chain. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he 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 uh, he could do some damage if he wanted to. Right, to right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this kind of it's a good example. This kind of thing is, and just how deeply entrenched this is too. You yeah. can find. You know, Lewis back in his day in the 30s talking about the uh, ill effects of advertising and newspapers and magazines because of doing this kind of thing. You put a picture up. It's a simple, mm -hmm. a simple thing, but you. Uh, I've watched old commercials with uh, my wife, and she'll. Uh, there'll be things about like cooking and things like that, and she and because she's really into actually doing Actual homemade cooking. things. <laughs> right. yeah. Homemade meaning not like I made it at home, but like you know. Right. Right. Homegrown, make your own dough, all this kind of. She right. sees right through all these kind of things. Stuff I would never have questioned. Yeah, like right. oh, that looks like a fine way to make a product. Yeah, because right? right, right. they're trying to tell you it's it's as good as homemade. Right. This is an old old. Uh, Which tells me trick. that advertising was yeah, trying yeah. to hit, hit hit dad's wallet rather than connect with the mom. Because she would have known the difference. Right. That's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. Well, and and uh, but but this whole this whole idea that reality is outside ourselves. Now, now, I've raised this question before I actually wrote about it for first things is it possible for us to retain a sense of the real with without any sort of actual physical engagement with physical things now it doesn't have to be you know butchering it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be building a house it could just be actually working with your hands on a project doing something real and not just virtually gardening, yeah. yeah on yeah, yeah gardening yeah perfect example gardening is one of those things that's deceptively difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, right. Because it's physically, it's more physically demanding than I think people know. Yeah. When you actually get in there and turn the soil and fertilize it and get on your knees to, to weed yep. and all these oh, yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's one one of the things. And again, we're, it's not about badgering technology. Nobody, nobody, from what we're doing, is in a situation where we're saying technology, technology bad. Yeah, we're, that we're using it right now. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but one yeah. of the things we're talking about is maybe what Elio. Uh, um, Oh, talk, Jacques, talk, Jacques. Jacques El yeah. Elio would talk about is when he talked about technology, he was talking about modern technique. Yes. He's talking about the way in which technology um, becomes utilitarian. What do I mean by that? It basically serves our will's interest. That's what he's talking yeah. about. The way we can manipulate things. And Including people. And people, and, and, and it, this creates a buffer from us having to actually realistically engage with the world and each other. That's yeah. what he's talking about. Right. So this is not uh, a criticism of technology in the ways that actually can foster those goods. It's talking mm -hmm. about the way it actually can hinder them, serve yeah. the modern yeah. project in a buffering right. us from right. reality. Right. Again, this is a really, really old idea. This is what the Tower of Babel Oh, yeah. Well, right. yeah, right. yeah, we, right. we actually As did a, something okay. on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to check that that's out. What, yeah. Uh, and that hideous strength, the title, yes. is a reference to the Tower of Babel from a 16th or something like that century yeah, Scottish I, poem. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can't remember. Right, and that's what it refers to. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and, and there's a really interesting, ambiguous relationship all towards technology all throughout ancient myths and stories. Yes. yes. Uh, smiths are, I mean, not like, you know, real human smiths who live in your village, but I mean, like, smiths are often sort of supernatural creatures. Yeah. They're associated with fire, subterranean realms. Dwarves. Yeah, dwarves. Yeah. But they're very connected to reality. Kind of 
Oh yeah, and definitely. That's, but that's, and they're not a, merely harnessing it for their own. Right, they're not. Yeah, it's and, the real and deal. If they do, they're the evil. The right? thing is, the thing about it that's interesting. Yeah, the bad dwarf. Right. Well, the thing that's interesting about it is how uh, how uh, how often in the stories there's some kind of these are sinister figures. You don't want to mess with them. They will yeah. tear. You know, one of the the Norse myths is of uh, a king who captures this elven smith, this elf Voland. <laughs> and uh, maims him so that he will uh, sets him on this island to make things oh, for him. Wow. The way the story ends, he winds up, you know, uh, decapitating both his sons by tricking them to looking into a chest of treasure, all these like beautiful shiny things, yeah. and then slamming the lid on there. Yeah. Next to uh, decapitating them and uh, raping his daughter, wow. then extracting a promise from the king. Uh, I'll tell you what happened to your sons if you promise, ne swear an oath never to harm my my son. He doesn't yet know that. Yeah. The king doesn't know that his grandson is yeah, right, know, right. is the is who he's referring to. So he makes it so. So now he has to also, uh, in addition to all these other but the, this, things this, he's in, right. suffered, he has to uh, he has to protect this uh, bastard grandson of his. So everything. <laughs> in other words, don't mess with this yeah, Smith character, this demonic <laughs> Elvin right. Smith character. Other right. times you get weapons, things that are cursed, and then they get. They pass along through the families, generation after generation, and they are the death of a family member in yeah, every generation. Right, right. But people always want them, too, because why would you not want a sword that can never be defeated in battle, even if it will be your own death? And so right. what these stories tell me is that there's a kind of complex attitude towards technology as something very desirable, yeah. but also something deadly, yeah. you know, well, not something first, dangerous yeah. to approach in a kind of cavalier way. Well, that's what we see with Lord of the Rings, with the ring. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah. But also, Saruman, yeah. yes, also throughout the Cimmerillion, yeah. where you have, in fact, right. that yeah. very yeah. kind of dwarf or character, you, yeah. know, you know, is it Mim? Did you remember? Mim, that? yeah, Mim. Yeah. yeah, Tolkien's Mim, yeah. yeah. And there's a Norse Mim as well. That he has yeah, well, yeah. we know where he got it. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, right. but, but you got all these... Uh, now, what's an, another thing is sort of is an interesting wrinkle. Maybe this is uh, intended to sort of redeem technology. You've got Smith of Witten Major. Yeah, right. Who is the Smith who does go to Ferry mm -hmm. and returns, and we're told that his work is both... Uh, you know, pleasing to the eye, yeah. good to hold. Right, useful and beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say that Tolkien was pretty obsessed with mm -hmm. discussing good and bad responses to the, the drive to create yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the drive to make things. And it's similar to what Lewis is talking about in The Abolition of Man, especially when he's evaluating sort of the, 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 the capacity or the dream of people to be able to uh, master nature. Yeah. Is that first of all, we're not mastering nature because basically it's only a handful of people that end up having the resources and the power to do it. You're mastering each other on one end. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he said, on the other yep. hand, in all this name of we're doing all of this basically for posterity's sake, he, <laughs> he goes after that. He says, yeah. no, you're not. What you're doing is you're imposing power. You're limiting the form through propaganda and uh -huh. idealism. You're limiting the form of power for future generations when you yeah. impose Mm. A sort of will, but one of the things he makes a contrast between what we're doing, the classical Christian metaphysical vision, or even just even the classical Western truth, beauty, and goodness, um, with the modern one, is is he's making uh, this this distinction where, on the one hand, um, you have technology that is organically connected to the created and moral order, mm -hmm. so it's about, for example, in medicine, it's about healing that which should. Right. be healed this way. He calls the difference between that versus the innovator, he makes the metaphor of the scalpel. 
where you go in and you start cutting around and he, he uses Nietzsche as an example. And Nietzsche comes on the scene and basically he wants to throw everything else off. Mm. Um, so, so whereas, you know, the, tr the classical vision would, would say, okay, we, we made this here and um, this here is like a, a, a better form of bread, for example, to nourish us. Hmm. He right. said Nietzsche comes in and gets rid of bread altogether and puts yeah. a brick on the table. Right. Yeah. You know, that's the kind yes. of, you know, right. kind of right. metaphor. It's something right. similar uh -huh. to that. Right. Right. That and the right. only reason why you don't appreciate brick is language. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You yeah. learn to call that brick when right. it's actually bread. Yeah, we'll bread. call this bread. Yeah, and then you'll start to like it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, now right. here's a, a, another way maybe into it, and I, I'm just bringing it up because it's kind of way I prepared for it, but uh, D.C. Schindler has a really neat uh, work out, and I'm trying to, oh, the, the title of the work is Love and Postmodern Predicament. But in this, he's kind of, it's basically a study on human nature and the classical transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm -hmm. and of course, he's reading it as a, a, as a, as from, from a Christian angle. But he really looks into the philosophical terrain that's led to what uh, G.K. Chesterton calls modernity. And this is called the Great March of Mental Destruction. <laughs> this is from Chesterton? Or yeah, Chesterton is the term, but he, he kept kind of bringing it up. And so this mental dis uh, destruction basically fertilized the ground in which postmodernism has sprouted and out of which its predicaments uh, have sprung up and grown. And so Schindler begins by noting a sort of prophetic insight by Chesterton um, that the most common sense truths will turn into creeds requiring the fidelity and courage of martyrs. Yeah. And well, so, yeah. There, there's that famous quote from from Orwell. Yeah. You know, uh, related to uh, the whole idea that that uh, you know, truth. Some things, you know, uh, are so obvious that it they would you know require courage to proclaim. That's I, right. I can't remember exactly how I put yeah. that. Yeah. I'm trying, trying to pull it off the top of my head, but I interrupted you. I'm no, sorry. it's a similar line. It's that it, you know, uh, truths like two and two makes four, and the fact that leaves are green in the summer will become such that fires will be kindled and swords drawn against those defenders of such formerly obvious truths. And so this fight, uh, Chesterton notes, will mimic the older battles for truths of the invisible realities. Mm -hmm. But it will now be done in the name of truths that the of the visible world, the world that stares us in the face. This is a quote. We shall fight for visible prodigies as if they were invisible. We shall look on the impossible grass in the skies with strange courage. We shall be of those who have seen and yet believed. Huh. Hmm. And so this is kind of what has happened as this modern, postmodern world and metaphysic has replaced the classical one, in which these obvious truths sitting right in front of us, we can talk about our language is connected to the meaning of things, um, versus what is, what is going on where we've become separated from the reality to where even if we walk by and see, I, I mean, we can look out right here and see that we're in the summer and these leaves, other than that one right there, are all green, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, he's not saying every leaf is green, but right, leaves yeah. are generally green right, in the right. summer. Um, and so, and he, and he talks about some of the steps of getting people away from that. And it's interesting, he, uh, Schindler, um, he said, these exaggerations may seem like big exaggerations. He said, no one's really going to be sitting around denying these, especially things that people are indifferent to, like leaves. Right, right, yeah. He said, now maybe somebody will um, raise the question, okay, well, in, traditionally, for example, sex and gender were connected to each other, but because these impact someone's liberated happiness now, which is a higher value we supposedly evolved to, right. well, those are the things maybe we will put a question mark over, but not things 
um, like leaves or green. Right, yeah. And he says, but what that tells you is something about the way truth functions. Hmm. Truth can be redefined, therefore, not because it's, it has an intrinsic meaning mm -hmm. in correspondence to the real world, but as long as it's, it serves our happiness or unhappiness, we can right. start to question and redefine truths that we've known right. a long time merely because they don't serve our desires, will, wants, right, and, right. and the like. Yeah. And so truth is already starting to become detached from the, wor the world picture that it originally was formed around. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's one of the things he was on to. But he said look, for, for Chesterton, it was sort of modern skepticism um, that created an ironic picture. Because on the one hand, the default position of the modern world is sort of skepticism. And it's, what does he mean by that? Well, if you go around and ask anyone on the street, um, the if, you know, if the what color of the leaves, are they really green? Most people probably say, yeah. But if you put a camera on them for the news, for example, they huh. may kind of step back and say, well, wait a minute, I don't, you know, I think they're green, but maybe they're not. Uh -huh. But who, who right. am I? Who am I to right. say? Cover my bases, right? <laughs> and he says, he calls this sort of the camera that has now become internalized okay. in the West. Okay. And so we almost have this technological camera watching us because yeah. It's self-evident to us in everything we know about anything, right. but we're afraid that maybe, just maybe, A, we're wrong, right. but more than that, maybe we are infringing on someone else who will not see it as great. Right, right. We want to be very careful about that. We want to be careful. <laughs> yes. And so he says, uh, and he puts this, um, the modern skeptic is not the heroic individual, but the everyday person in the street now. And he goes, Chesterton notes something odd of this modern skepticism, something we see again and again in the relativism which grows out of it. He sees that though it evinces a reluctance to affirm any definitive truth, it is quite definitive about its own truth, right. so much so that we have to recognize modern skepticism as dogmatic in spite of itself. Yeah. And so what ends up going on here is we, if you follow this all the way down to the postmodern world, this is a... a Schindler quote, we don't actually believe anything. We don't believe anything. Right, right. He says, but then a troubling situation happens. Yeah. Because we want to tolerate any opinion, because we don't want to make anyone else feel excluded from the public share and expressed opinions. We've never really had to argue for any truth. Yeah. So the beliefs we have have not been fought for in reality in any public kind of argumentation and uh, having to conform them to reality. Yeah. And so therefore, it's become, our beliefs have come to us very easily. Mm. So then we wonder in the last election, for example, in our country, how people come completely unhinged at right. when their side didn't win. Right, mm -hmm. right. When their belief system wasn't affirmed by everyone, like this from the school teacher, you know, everybody's right. opinion matters. Right, uh -huh. right, right. Um, well, all of a sudden, that someone said, wait a minute, your opinion doesn't matter, at least to a large percentage of the country. Right. Oh, this yeah. was a shock. Well, yeah. why? And <laughs> he puts so it like this. He goes, we, we don't actually believe anything, but on the other hand, whatever attachment we do have becomes absolute yeah, because right. it is unreflected and immediate, not mediated by reason. Mm. We've ever, never had to argue it against the reality, mm -hmm. and we've never had to measure it against yeah. reality. It's just something that we, we have been basically propped. Yeah. Idealism and, and propaganda. Mm. It's very visceral. And, yeah. uh, and so, in respect, the conviction has an essential form of fanaticism, an emotional attachment that is immune from all reasoning. There is no incompatibility between half hearted irony and fanatical conviction. 
these can reinforce each other, produce each other in an escalating way, turn immediately into each other, and even in some sense at once in the same mind. The tolerant, the tolerance that is expressly embraced as an ideal by the modern West fosters at the same time an ethos of irrational violence. Yeah, yeah, well we're yep. seeing that all around us. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, there's so many things that flood my mind, you know, as you, as you outlined all of this. One of the things that came to mind as a pastor is sort of the slow sort of dawning of awareness among yeah. sort of people for whom maybe 20 years ago if I had raised these as a possible sort of sort of ways in which our society was, was going to, you know, uh, kind of function, or not function, but not function. Uh, right. <laughs> so right. people would just roll their eyes, you know, and just say, oh, that's crazy, that'll never happen. But then it happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there's this kind of inability to, to comprehend what's going on all around you mm -hmm. and, and understand how, you know, to respond. You know, it's one thing when you know that, okay, there are a bunch of crazy people in Berkeley and Cambridge. They <laughs> yeah, do all yeah. kinds of nutty stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if I was an artist or if I was an academic, that would be, you know, something I'd have to deal with. But, hey, you know, I just work for a living. I work at Aetna or I work for, you know, you know some plumber. You know, whatever. You know, I'm, right. I'm, I'm touched with the real world. But now, mm. all these people, you know, everybody I talk to, when I talk to them about their extended families, even the most sort of straight, sort of traditional homes, yeah. my sister, my brother, my uncle, my whatever, yeah. is nuts. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, how do I deal with this? Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's right there, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's that. Then there's the other thing that, you know, that we, we can look at that and we can say, well, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know that's the way liberalism sort of plays itself out? Yeah. But there's also a kind of uh, expression within uh, evangelicalism, yeah, well, particularly within megachurch, church growth evangelicalism, yeah. in which people are viewed as, you know, from a technological perspective, yeah. technique. Yeah. Way. So our church is, yeah. maybe you know it, maybe you don't, has become kind of a refuge for people yeah. who are fleeing churches that have manipulated them. Yeah. Huh. You know, so one of the reasons why you may have wondered, why don't we have sort of this strong programmatic dimension yeah. to our church? Because many of our people have fled. Why isn't Esther Chris wearing skinny jeans? <laughs> <laughs> because people are fleeing. Right? Exactly. Amen. That's right. That's right. That's right. No one. I, I have enough. I have enough. I'm in touch with reality enough. Yeah, right. you know, that no one wants to see me in skinny jeans. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. There's a great. There's actually a great. We could do a show on that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'll do the uh, headway IPA. Can I have another Smithics? I'll do one last. Uh, As you know, we got another round. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I've been waiting for this moment. But, but, yeah. <laughs> but this, hits, this hits really on that kind of the third point of it. It's discipleship. Um, and, and I think this is exactly where, especially the evangelical church, and, I, and I, I think maybe it's worth revisiting a few other episodes about the impact of propaganda the changed metaphysic on the evangelical, because I think it's there. I mean, oh, people yeah. like Mark Knoll, Dave Wells, they've been tracing this kind of stuff in their own and way. No one, and, no one, and, and no one understands anything they say. That's right. You that's know, right. You know I, when I read David Wells, and yeah. he was at Gordon Conwell, yeah. he was at the school you teach yeah. at, yeah. You know, he, he was, uh, I think, you know, doing great work. Mm -hmm. But I can't see any evidence yeah. in any of the people who went to Gordon Conwell of his teaching. 
Yeah. Now, I'm not. That's not saying anything against against him. I think he did a great job. It's the power. Yeah. It's the power of the propaganda. I think, yeah, and, right. and the kind of thing we're up against. Um, and I, and I think you know, it, it's kind of new territory for me to think about. Not because I'm new to knowing it's there. But I've been really trying to think of those correlations between discipleship. I mean, on one end, you, there's no way in which we can't be impacted by it. Even if you try to you just work through negation, you know, you go uh -huh. off the Benedict option or you go right, off into right. the cave. doesn't matter. Right. You're, you're still impacted, shaped, and determined by so many of these things. The question is, what is Christian discipleship? And, the, and when I mean Christian discipleship, I'm talking the holistic picture, not the, the fragmented picture of mere redemption. Mm -hmm. See, the evangelical world wants to talk redemption by, but gut the whole rest of the picture, which is creation and the created moral order. Yeah. And by doing that, has, it, it, it can play with the created moral order all it wants to. And, and so all of a sudden, um, you have an idealistic you have an ideology rather than a real right. gospel, and I right, think that's right. what is going. I think that's what we're contending against: is propaganda and ideology, but in a Christianized gospel form versus right. Christian biblical realism, which is a whole different. It's just kind of what we're we're trying to get a hold of. Yeah, something that holds together the truth, beauty, and goodness of all of the classical um, metaphysical vision, but finds its center in the light of all things, Christ right, and its redemption. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got the brews appear. They have appeared. They are being deposited upon the so table. Much. All right, this thank one, you. You really have this new recording that you're ordering here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You it's have been immortalized. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Have two thousand, two thousand listeners. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, you know uh, this this phenomenon of uh, you know sort of the capitulation or the, the captivity of evangelicalism is something that people have talked about a lot and uh, it's sort of like uh, technology getting back to the sort of the two sides of it mm -hmm. you know in some respects you can say well you know in, in sort of the cultural footprint of, mm -hmm. of modern evangelicalism is due to its sort of embrace of these techniques and these huh. technologies. Yeah. yeah. Like the whole church growth movement, if you, yeah. if you look at it, it's basically a, a very pragmatic and utilitarian cast on the gospel. So you reduce the mm -hmm. gospel. Which is right where it has embraced fully the alternative metaphysical That's picture right. and made it susceptible to worldly propaganda. And it gets more and more absurd as you go. I mean, I remember the days when, you know, it was Gaither music we wanted to introduce in the service. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. A, it's like that was the radical thing to do. Then it was right. second chapter of Acts. And, and, then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and now you've got you know, got, you know, you've got these places that are just almost like uh, theme parks and zoos with, yep. you know, all kinds of nutty stuff going on and laser yeah. light shows. Yeah. And, and people, <laughs> people don't catch the, you know, I, I heard a, a local pastor I won't name talk about sort of that, you know, I remember in a, in a little local study was talking about, well, why shouldn't the church, if it, he, he was making fun of a church who had a kind of like a cheesy little game park, you know, or, Amusement park theme, and he said, yeah. "Well, if you're going to do it, you might as well, you know, be better than Disney." Right. And I, I get Think the, about that. I get, I get yeah. the aim, but I get, the, I get the problem. <laughs> That's right. Do you see? You see, it's, it's, it, it is, it, it is that the the world's methodologies are are basically fine. We just haven't utilized them to with the maximal emphasis. Right. That's right. 
That's right. Well, we, that's why we need a billion dollar budget so we can that's right. have a thing. Right, yeah. And if we just had all the best of everything, everybody would just be converted. Right. You it's know? Just, it's oops. not it's not the you know, it's not a it's not a perverse will. Right. Right. It's no, not it's not bond, that. No. It's not a will in bondage to the very so, things that they're promoting. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing about the person. And it's so funny because you get all these it's were you and I passed away talking about this? Like I think we were joking about bowling for Christ, you know, like let's just introduce or, or maybe it was my friend Tim, who's a an Episcopal priest and, and uh, has a lot to address and do. I, I don't know who uses this example, but the thing is, you can kind of say, "Thanks, I can go bowling and not have the church part," yeah, yeah, or right. like movie night for youth and a, and a gospel yeah. message. Well, you know, or I could go to the movies and not get your gospel. Message. Like you're not offering anything you can't already right, get when right, you take right, that right. method, when you right. take that approach. Yeah, 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 that's right. And perhaps, and this is where apostolic confidence comes in. Perhaps we have something the world doesn't have. That's yeah, I think. And and, yeah. the, and the thing we need to say is, you don't know what good is. Yeah. Like yeah. I was a kid, I used this yeah. illustration right, a lot yeah, in church. Yeah. Oh, not this story again. I'm so sick and tired of that story. I, I actually like the story. I like the story. So anyway, when I was a kid. Uh, my mom would make pecan pie, and, my, and, and you know this is back when we actually lived together as a, as a family. So, and then I was like, I look at this pecan pie, and I was like, man, that's the grossest looking thing. <laughs> you know, it looked like roaches swimming in, in, in you know brown, brown goop. Sugar. And that's right. I was like, I don't want that. And my father would smile and say, I'll have your slice. You <laughs> yeah. don't know what good is. Right. Yeah. 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 Maybe what we need to, to like do that. is say, you know what? I'm sorry, you don't know what good is. Yeah. And we need to have enough confidence to say, this is good. I know you don't get it. Trust me, though. Yeah. Yeah. Stay with me. You can get it. Mm -hmm. if, you, yeah. if you look for this and look for this and look for this and go through detox, because yeah. that's what, mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. We're getting detox, you know, yes. getting, getting all the toxins out of us. Yeah. You know, from Purification. Of the, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the inborn, you know, the yeah. original sin, but also worldliness. That's right. It's the, it, you know, it's uh, what one of my uh, professors once said, it's the weaning us off of our idols and the purification of our desires. Right? Yeah. So we're, right. we're being weaned off our idols by the truth, yes. beauty and goodness, mm -hmm. that it corresponds to yeah. the, the eternal creator who has no comparison. Mm -hmm. Which, in some way or another, is what, as far as I can tell, virtually every religion that's ever existed, you know, up until wacky stuff in like you know, nineteenth, twentieth century, emphasized the, the core of the, the yeah. core. The core of them did. There's always yeah. something. It's something wrong with you. Now, whatever that, yeah. however different the end goal of you know, Nirvana in Hinduism may be from yeah. you know, Christian Paris. Essentially, though, there's some idea you have a problem. You need to f conform yourself in some way. To submit it. to teaching. This is, I mean, this is just this universal. Is, well, this, this is what this humans is have what always Lewis understood. Was called, he called it, you know, sort of the Tao. The Tao he, but yeah. he, he was talking about it basically as the create. This is what we mean by the metaphysical picture. Um, the metaphysical picture that there is a created order and that there is a moral order attached to it. It's what Romans says, that the creation itself speaks about this. Yeah, right. The, to the invisible attributes of God and what's required of it. These things attest. It's revelatory. Now, where... Where religion comes in, in general, is that on the one hand, as Paul says, you know, the, the Greeks have this, and they do what's in it without even having the law. But on right. the other hand, they're condemned too because they, they, by recognizing, recognize that they're also sinners. Yeah. And so religion itself had, carries this ambiguity. It mm. tends to, all the historic religions tend to affirm that there is something that attests to those invisible attributes and that yeah. goodness and what's owed him. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's a running away from the true light, which requires you know Christian 
conversion and the way, the truth, and the life that only Christianity gives. So Christianity is the fulfillment of the desire of the nations. Yeah, and it's also yeah. a weaning them away from their idols and a purifying from whatever truth they did have, but in, in limited form. I don't know if I said that well. No, right? That's good. That's, That's good. right. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we're getting to a point where we need to do some wrapping up. Um, so, you know, one of the thoughts, or a couple of thoughts that come to my mind as I think about this is that, you know, we've all been a part of these uh, online discussions or even, you know, personal discussions where somebody has to have the last word. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and, I, and, and yeah. as, I, as I reflect on that, you know, sort of what that implies is that there's a lack of faith in reality. This is not so much mm-hmm. a... It actually reflects a sort of a weak, weak position. Yeah. I have to impose upon you my thought because reality doesn't speak. Yes. Whereas if I genuinely believe that my thoughts reflect yeah. reality, mm-hmm. I can say what I say yeah. and I'm done. Yeah. This is a, the big, di- a big uh, difference in approaches to teaching. You know, right now in the humanities there's so much emphasis on teaching kids to think the right things you know and what this means is a particular mm-hmm. propaganda and a particular yeah. you know left left leaning if uh, if if not full on left wing right. uh, agenda and so forth the idea which has been held in the past by liberals and conservatives alike that if you teach students you know to reason well and to respond to the you know mm-hmm ancient wisdom embedded in these great texts and all this kind of yeah. stuff, uh, they will reach the right conclusion. You don't have to, you're training them to yeah. seek out truth. Yeah. This, whenever I have talked about this or debated this with, uh, you know, other people in academia my own age or, or a little bit older, uh, it's not enough. You can tell, like, no, yeah. no, 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 they, they might come away with the wrong conclusion. We really need to be yeah. on the nose about what is right, right and wrong. Right, right. We don't trust yeah. re- showing reality to them that they will come away, you know, this is virtuously. Prop- this is where yeah. propaganda comes from. Yeah, well, that's exactly. it, and I, I think what, what is the gospel is showing the reality, and it's, it's pushing that reality a little further than even most pictures can do it. It's a pushing it all the way up into our sinfulness, yeah. which is something, there. if anything, everything has a buffer against it's that. But, but that, that, that is a set of, uh, I think, riches that we have that, uh, let me put it a different way, discipleship in the Christian sense of the word is is that kind of form of life that is bound up with reality in its fullest sense in Christ and redemption but also in in the creaturely dimensions um, of, of truth beauty and goodness um, these things evoke and pull us towards them and they all point towards our you know the creator yeah um, and so that vision I think is something that ties us to reality in a way that ideology cannot and the sad thing with Orwell is he, I think, was already working at a time where he didn't know how to get back to it. He wanted to affirm it, but he didn't know how to get back to it. And yeah. I think yeah. it's something we have to get back to. I think it's something that we've been, right. in, you know, carrying, carrying all along in, in our fidelity to, to the faith and, and, and the fuller vision of the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Well, yes. this is a good way to sort of bring things to a conclusion. Um, anything else you wanted to say, Joseph, before we um, wrap it up? I don't think so. All right. Well, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah. You we'll have you back another time. Yeah. Hey, great. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. see if you 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 are coming. I think to Beowulf next I week. Am. I am. I hope you can come, Tom, to Beowulf. I think I'm going to be out of town, but if we're going to be talking about paganism and uh, and well, Christian these Christians who sure. converted sure. and then wrote 
epic poetry about their pagan ancestors. So. Well, for those hey. out there in podcast this land, that's right. yeah, what's happening is Joseph, every year, he and his wife have had uh, this event. event at their house where uh, they, uh, in this case, we're going to be actually listening to Beowulf yeah, in, in the Old, old English. English. Yeah, with a translation to follow along with, yeah, but you'll be able to see the Old English. And then Joseph will give us commentary and help us understand what in the world we're hearing. <laughs> that's right. But so anyway, you just increased the people coming. <laughs> Two thousand people are coming. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Anyway, anything else you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? Uh, no, it's a topic I think we'll revisit quite a bit. I'm just kind of entering into it from this angle, but I think there's a lot of rich uh, things here, and I do think the church has to start discerning these these levels of which propaganda and ide ideology are impacting yeah. um, the church and how discipleship and fidelity to the gospel helps counter that. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great show. I've enjoyed the discussion. I hope the listeners have too. Anyway, yeah. well, that's it for the Theology Podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.